So I don't know if you uh, grabbed uh, an outline or not. I was late in putting them out uh, or putting them back out. I just put the ones from last week back out. Uh, we are still in Exodus 21, verse 1 through 11, uh, thinking about uh, God's provision for his people and material things and how the, uh, the nature of belonging to him, his value on the family, his value on his own grace and love uh, being displayed uh, amongst his people who are to be holy as he is holy. Uh, and one of the great displays of his holiness and glory uh, is in his love and mercy and grace to us. Uh, and therefore, uh, one of the great displays of his holiness in his people uh, is their love and grace and mercy uh, to one another. Uh, and therefore, uh, the wanting that continues, the, uh, the lack in material things uh, that continues in a creation that is bound to corruption and decay, and even among a covenant people who are guaranteed plenty if they were faithful, and yet were also told with no uncertainty that they would always have poor among them because they would never be faithful, uh, that the Lord would give them in uh, the lack of resources, opportunities uh, in how that is addressed. Uh, to show love to one another, to display the holiness of God in their culture, uh, and uh, uh, and to cause praise and thanksgiving uh, to abound to him. Uh, so with that in mind, let's come back in. I'll read the whole passage again, uh, although we are intending uh, primarily to take verses uh, 7 through 11 and hopefully move on uh, to Deuteronomy 15. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself? Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Um, so far, the reading of God's word uh, realizes as I was reading it that um, uh, both for our own catching back up to verse seven uh, and uh, for any who might not have been here last week, uh, we should try to recap in brief, and that's always dangerous to try to do uh, in brief, but we try to recap in brief in verses one through six. And uh, one of the main points here is that uh, often when people from our age 
uh, and our and by that we mean ourselves when we come to a passage like this, uh, especially much more infected uh, by evolutionary theory and critical theory uh, than even we who are aware of what it is and what it teaches. Uh, basically, uh, the whole world has been groveling in darkness until we arrived and we are the best that there has ever been and we are the wisest uh, and the most good uh, and everything from prior cultures right up until yesterday and especially our parents uh, are fools and wicked and we are going to show them by fixing the whole world. Uh, that is the mindset of our culture. That is the mindset of those uh, who have gone to public school uh, up through 12th grade or after having been educated somewhat safely, uh, but perhaps not being discipled, are sent, over, uh, sent to university uh, to, to become woke idiots uh, who hate God and hate truth and hate righteousness. Um, but we... When we read Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and our first thought is, I can't believe God would say that uh, he should love marriage more. We never say that about God. We say Moses or Exodus, but we know that no man spoke, no prophet spoke of his own, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we don't even allow ourselves the conscious idea that it is God about whom we are saying that. But when we come to the text, and it's unfamiliar, and it's giving us instructions that say things like the, the wife and the children, uh, the wife, if the master gives him a wife, the wife and the children belong to the master, and if he goes out, he has to leave them behind, we say, oh, that's horrible. And we don't think through it like we thought through it together last week, uh, about how uh, if the man is married already when he goes in, uh, his wife and his children come out with him. If he's not married already when he goes in, he's about to lose seven years of his life. And he has a choice, even when he's a slave, uh, whether or not he's going to take that wife. And so he's already calculating at the, uh, at the point where his master is seeking for him uh, a wife. Uh, uh, is my master the kind of master that I want to be with for the rest of my life? Is this woman that he uh, has uh, obtained for me, uh, is she the, a woman that I would uh, like to have as wife for the rest of my life under this master? Or is it worth it just putting everything on hold for me uh, for a few years until I have my liberty uh, and then obtaining a wife and starting my family uh, at that point? Uh, and so even before you sell yourself into slavery, uh, you have a choice over to whom you sell yourself. And you would seek godly masters. You would especially seek, if you're a young, unmarried man who hasn't done well finding a wife for himself or your daddy hasn't, uh, hasn't done well helping you do that or whatever, if the, if the master to whom you're going to sell yourself has a track record uh, of having obtained good wives for young men slaves and there have been a bunch of ear-piercing uh, ear ceremonies... Uh, at that master's house, uh, then you pick him over someone else. Uh, and, uh, and so the Lord is actually uh, fostering not just uh, identifying those with whom you want to live as part of their household, at least for seven years, and possibly 
if things go as you had hoped they would, things don't always go as you hoped they would when you take a job or when you, uh, or when you take a calling. Or, uh, but if they go as you had hoped they would, and then a wife is proposed uh, and, uh, and it all lines up, this is actually a society that prizes love between master and slave uh, and goodness to one another. Uh, and if you are the you know, such a slave of a master, a master does not uh, does not want uh, necessarily to provide you a wife if you're not a good slave, right? Uh, he wants to be done with you after the seven-year contract. Uh, and if he provides you a, a good wife, he might be stuck with your ear pierced to his uh, uh, at the doorpost. Uh, and now he's got you and your wife and your children who are being reared by you who were not a good worker to begin with. Uh, so there's a lot of lot of factors going on, uh, and the Lord actually uh, wants love between master and slave, love in the household, diligent service from servant to master, the prizing of marriage, the not putting it off for an extra seven years. They wouldn't just shrug their shoulders at that, like our culture that does not prize marriage and does not prize childbearing and is continuously putting those things off. Uh, uh, and and so when we come and we read a passage like these 11 verses in the arrogance of saying, oh, I can't believe he would sell his daughter, um, then first of all, we are missing our context, we are missing the Bible's context, and we are doing so because we are coming to the word of God in arrogance and the strangeness of the procedure rubs us the wrong way, and we ought to be humiliated that it does, uh, and thankful to God that he exposes us. Um, well, we're not going to spend more time uh, on verses 1 through 6. That was, well, if you spent 30 minutes on it before, 8 minutes is brief. So we come into verse 7, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Uh, this is actually, to some extent, how God saved Joseph's life. Uh, you remember Joseph was going to be murdered by his brothers, uh, and they, uh, without uh, Reuben, who was uh, hoping to sneak him back home. Um, yeah, I think it was Reuben. Was it Judah already at that time? Uh, uh, they, uh, they saw the Midianite traders, and they said, you know, life expectancy uh, of the average slave sold into Egypt is... Uh, measured in weeks, not months. They mostly uh, end up being field slaves, and the Egyptians think it's cheaper. Um, we actually know this from contemporary history. Uh, we're not just uh, reading it into the text. Uh, the Egyptians considered it cheaper uh, to buy new slaves than to uh, feed and, and take care of well, and especially once they got uh, ill or injured uh, to attend to their field slaves. Uh, so they thought they were murdering Joseph by selling him to the Midianites, uh, but God made Joseph not to be a field slave. He made him to be purchased, first of all, uh, by, uh, as far as Egyptians go, a fairly upright man, uh, and then he made him a house slave, and he ascended very quickly by his faithfulness to be over the entire house. Uh, uh, so when uh, this is already saying, if a daughter is sold into slavery, she is not to be treated like the men. She is a daughter, not a son. 
She is a woman, not a man. And she is not to be made a field slave. She is not to be put uh, to hard labor. Uh, she shall not go out. Um, you know, she's not from the 20th or the 21st century saying, you know, all the things that uh, men can do, women should do and do better. Uh, no, she is among the people of God uh, in which daughters are prized and uh, have a role that God has blessed them with uh, and a role that is admired. And um, uh, and then you, you have, uh, and perhaps you even read it, you, you heard it uh, in the intonation as, uh, as we were reading, if she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself? So she's not even a house slave, is she? You get halfway through verse 8, you realize what's happening here. Here is a family that is uh, is so far out of money that one of the children is being sold into slavery. But what's happened is actually a marriage. She hasn't become property. She's become a wife. And this was really her only shot. Um, because of the poor family that she was from. Uh, so she is, she is now a wife, and, uh, and she uh, has come to please her new household, her new head, who is her husband, but she also, in the act of it, uh, brings to, to her dad's family, brings to her family of origin, uh, a raising them up out of the uh, out of the poverty that they were in. This is not a girl who is being humiliated. This is a girl who, in temporal material things, is being given by God an elevation of her own status and the privilege of being one through whom her family uh, has been lifted up out of the difficulty of their circumstance. Dave. <laughs> I don't know of anywhere that it actually gives steps. Uh, you know, we've already been through a number of passages uh, in which there's provision made for the poor generally. Uh, but the poor generally are described as orphans, widows, and strangers, or, or foreigners, uh, particularly because, as we're seeing in, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, it's first and foremost the duty um, uh, of the father uh, to provide for his own household. Um, so uh, a lot would depend because it doesn't give you steps uh, what what you have to sell, uh, whether you have found uh, a position to sell yourself into to take care of your house altogether under one, uh, whether you... Uh, whether your daughter's uh, biological time clock is ticking. You had the man with the seven years. It's actually a lot more urgent for a daughter uh, to be stuck uh, seven years 
uh, in the household of a master to whom you... There's, there's just a lot of considerations. All of these things require wisdom in sorting through in, uh, in real time. Uh, but um, it's important for us to read from the particular statutes that he gives them to the principles that are behind those statutes so that we can, when we are thinking, you know, not even necessarily in a diagonal situation, which is what we're primarily thinking about, uh, but uh, just all of us and what we are doing with our child rearing, uh, how we think about our, our children's futures, uh, what we talk about as far as education goes, the counsel we give to young men and young ladies uh, when they come into a transi transitionary period in life. Uh, for instance, you know, this lie that was made up 70 years ago uh, about the gift of singleness, you know, twisting the gift of chastity in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, I wish that all were as I am, and he is definitely not saying, I wish everybody was single, uh, because he's going to come to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, and literally command that, not necessarily that they have to get married, but they certainly have to try. Marriage comes in God's providence, but every, every grown woman under 60 should be aiming at marriage. That's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But we live in a church culture, in a church age, in which uh, the role of the wife, the role of the mother, is not treasured, uh, is not sought out. Uh, and instead of saying, God in his providence may end up keeping you single, despite all of your and your dad's and your church's, uh, church's uh, efforts. And if you are kept single, it is not so that you can... Uh, uh, become uh, as a, a, an individual uh, isolated unit who, uh, who is a, a ghost on the fringes of, uh, of the society of God's church. It is a, for a season of service. Now, you're not uh, over 60 and so unable to do some of the other things and pray night and day uh, as uh, one who is left alone. Uh, and the assumption in the text, now this is, this is all... Well, not all, because I only dealt with up through verse 10 uh, in Thursday's devotional. Uh, uh, the assumption in the text is even in a church situation where the young ladies are seeking to be married and seeking to have children and seeking to be so busy with not only the care of their husband and the care of their children, but the keeping of the home in such a way that strangers can be lodged there and the, the feet of the saints can be washed there and the whole church be, be refreshed, that even in, a, in that context, it will take decades of her life until she is at least 60. I mean, he literally makes a hard rule. If she's under 60, she can't be put on the list, right? In 1 Timothy 5, it will take decades of life of the Holy Spirit seasoning her through all of that selfless service that she would be the kind of widow in 1 Timothy 5, which is a real widow, which means not only that she's been left alone, but also that she's so contented with God that she would rather do nothing else than pray night and day and supplications and prayers. So we live in, we live in, a, in a very different culture and uh, we need the, the principles of God's view of the family and how he matures us. 
So, so what we say to a, sing, uh, a single uh, lady is, yes, you should be looking for marriage, but uh, if the Lord isn't giving you marriage yet, you should be seeking to exhaust yourself in selfless service in other ways. There are lots of young mothers who are on the border of despair and never show it in the church because they've got, you know, you know I knew a young mother who had five children under seven. Uh, and um, and it was exhausting, and it is sanctifying, but it's also strengthening for a young lady who hasn't been given motherhood and hasn't been given wifehood to instead of saying, oh, I have such a hard time at church because everybody else is married and everybody else has children, and I feel so badly for me to say, God has appointed me a providence in which I can go into these other young mothers' homes and strengthen their hands and be matured by the same selflessness and the same service without having to have the same providence, even while I seek marriage. Okay, so so that wasn't something that was invented out of whole cloth in 1 Timothy chapter 5. That comes from principles that exist already in Genesis chapter 2 and principles that are being applied already in how the poor are cared for in Exodus 21. Uh, yes, Dave. But it does give a principle for the woman under the priest. It gives instruction to that she goes to first and go to her children and for ministry. Well, that's even for the woman over 60, right? The, the the true widow in First Timothy 5 has both qualifications. Qualification A, she doesn't have children or grandchildren. Because if she has children or grandchildren, there's been a providential appointment to them because piety is shown first in the home. It's shown first in the home, verses 1 and 2, with Timothy, uh, who uh, learns from how uh, you speak to mother and father and brother and sister, how he's supposed to speak in the congregation. How many, and we've covered this already in a couple of situations, uh, how many so-called Christian homes where everything is a war and then you get to church and everyone puts their plastic face on and treats everyone nicely? Uh, can we really give them instruction? You should really speak to Miss D the way you speak to your mom. You should really speak to the younger men and younger uh, women in the church the way you speak to your brothers and sisters. The way a lot of moms are spoken to and brothers and sisters are spoken to, uh, you do not want to say that to them. Um, sadly, there are congregations in which the older women and the younger uh, people, etc., are spoken to that way. But that's not God's design for the family and how the life at home informs the life in the congregation, which we saw already in 1 Timothy 3 with the qualifications of the elders and the qualifications of the deacons. So you show piety first at home there. You show piety first at home by repaying your parents, he says in verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, and uh, if she has children and grandchildren, she's not really a widow, not the kind of widow for whom the church has an opportunity to treat as a queen in Israel, one of these whom you speak to as, 
as you would your mother, verses 1 and 2, and one who enters into one of the most Christ-like ministries that there is. He always lives to intercede. What do you think is saying about this true widow who has been matured to that point? And in God's providence, she reaches 60 and she doesn't have children and grandchildren who showed their piety first at home. She is still showing her piety first at home and she has been so molded into the image of Christ that what he is doing on the throne of glory, she is doing in her home and does not want to leave that for anything. But the young women who have been sold the 20th and 21st century bill of hanging out and being social uh, and all of that mess, they have not been matured uh, until the time that they're 60 uh, of no longer needing that because of how much they love their fellowship with God and their service to others. And they see and know now that prayer is service to others. And they literally have a congregation that says, we have Jesus who always lives to intercede for us. And we have the Holy Spirit who is always interceding for us. And there are among us some older women who have reared their children, who have loved their husbands. And now God has taken their husband and they have nothing else left. And they, not always because sometimes they're asleep, but they continue in supplications night and day. And we should want for every one of our daughters that if God brings them to the point that they're 60 years old or older and their children are grown and gone and then he takes from them their husband, they will be a queen in the Israel of God who continues in supplications night and day, who is thought of by the rest of the congregation as under Jesus, under the Spirit, in addition to the elders who one of the reasons that the diaconate exists so that they can give themselves to prayer first and ministry of the word second, they're on the role as the supported widows. And the honor that is being described as giving to them is similar in, in kind to the double honor that is given to the elders who rule well and especially those whose vocation is in preaching and teaching. It's not a welfare list. It's wrecking. You know, taking 1 Timothy 5 and and turning it into a a welfare list is missing the point of piety at home for how we speak, piety at home for repaying parents, piety at home for the widow over 60, and piety at home for all the young ladies until they get to 60. And then you hear these or read, don't ever read Gospel Coalition. I understand it's a gateway drug from evangelicalism to reformed-ish Christianity. But when they start publishing these articles about how a biblical view of marriage and a biblical view of the home is idolizing the family, it's not idolizing the family, it's trusting in Jesus and obeying Jesus because the family is the basic unit of his church and it is the training ground for piety, and it is the first place that we are called and commanded to show it. Is it possible to idolize? It's possible to idolize everything. We idolize our piety and congregational worship too. 
Just because there are people who idolize their piety at home, it doesn't mean that trying to speak a biblical word or two into an upside-down, backwards, inside-out culture is somehow idolizing the family. Sorry, you got me going. Um, anyway, so this daughter in Exodus 21, 7 through 11 is not being abused or devalued. God is giving an opportunity even by the providence through which she came into lack and her family came into lack to elevate her twice in one fell swoop. Uh, Brother Jeff. Yes, that, that, that's true. Um, we've, we've been covering that, and there's actually a... That's true of all slavery in Israel, but one of the other things that we've covered is that there are specific statutes, and this is, um, this is true uh, of this passage when we were in verse 2 last week. Um, there are specific statutes that were for Hebrews and Israelites in particular... Uh, that uh, that were different than what applied to the foreigner. The foreigner didn't have the jubilee. The foreigner didn't have the seven-year limitation. Uh, the foreigner didn't have uh, all of these statues. So this is um, this is not only a, a different kind of slavery, which, by the way, since we've mentioned uh, our history and uh, it's evoked the recent unpleasantness for uh, for many of us. Um, Southern Presbyterians in particular, and other godly, there were other godly people than Presbyterians, but the Presbyterians were the ones who taught them all their theology. They'd say, we'll learn everything else from Presbyterians except their Presbyterianism. That's fine. Um, until Finney. And then you learn bad things from Presbyterians, and we destroyed the whole church. So, uh, God forgive us. Um, but Southern Presbyterians in particular... Uh, many of whom, and we talked about this before, many of whom inherited slaves. Um, but they would treat their slaves as having been brought into a covenant household because God, in whatever providence, had appointed those slaves to their house. And they, their slaves would be baptized and their slaves would be catechized and they would start following the principles that applied not just to slavery in Israel, but the slavery of an Israelite. Because they didn't consider their slaves foreigners uh, anymore. And many of them, um, it was a tremendous financial burden to take care uh, of, a, of a slave and one that you inherited. But they refused to separate families. They refused to sell them to bad masters just to offload the, uh, the difficulty of the money. Uh, you know, one of my heroes, John Gerardo, um, didn't have slaves himself, um, but he spent uh, a fair amount of his ministry in and out of jail uh, because 
the, uh, they taught the slaves in his congregation, or they taught the masters in his congregation, this view, uh, which uh, even though it started in, whether it was indentured chat, uh, servitude or uh, in many cases it was chattel slavery and they would inherit them or uh, whoever they, he taught them to catechize them. And then on the Lord's day, they would all bring their slaves and he personally spent the, the entire middle of the day between the services uh, catechizing and instructing uh, the slaves uh, uh, to the extent that uh, no one believed that the slaves couldn't read because of how much Bible they knew and how much theology that they knew. And he was constantly being jailed on charges of having taught them to read when he hadn't although I'm not sure he would have minded. Um, but so our whole historical, uh, again, evolutionary theory, critical theory, uh, has really screwed us up. And it wasn't like that with everyone. Uh, I mean, it's not like the majority of people uh, in, the, in 19th century America were godly Presbyterians. Would that have been the case? And then Finney would have just been uh, defrocked and excommunicated and uh, we wouldn't be where we are 170 years later. Uh, Dave? All right, so I'm going to try to lasso it all the way back to the lesson. Uh, one of the things that the historical anecdotes, and uh, come and ask me later, probably Jeff knows a lot more about uh, Mr. Lee and Mr. Jackson than I do, but I have some anecdotes I'd love to share with you um, about the difference that genuine piety makes you know, they were exceptional men. Uh, and even in their time, they were exceptions, not the rule. But that's part of the reason we are studying Exodus 21 together as Hopewell Church. We want to be an exceptional church with exceptional households in whom the Lord produces the kind of piety that makes us exceptional men and women in our time. To view marriage in a way, to view the dignity of a man who is made in the image of God in a way, to view the greatness of a redeemed man and the renewed image of God in Christ in him in a way that is not generally done in the culture, is not sadly, and we pray for revival, but it's not right now generally done in the churches, but we want to do it. And we want to do it with our children and we want our children to do it with their children better than we did it with ours. And that's why we're laying a biblical foundation for a diaconate that is taking the character and the priorities and the principles of our God and working them out in what happens when there's scarcity of material things rather than a diaconate that is 
here's how we can be pseudo-social justice on the surface and trick the, the world into thinking that we are good like they are so that they will want to come and be the, the same as they still are because they figured out that we are just like they are. The whole kind of um, mercy ministry for self-promotion, which is very different than if you are light and if you are salt, and if that is true from the inside out, 24 hours a day, first at home, then in your church, then with your neighbor, light cannot be hidden. And you may be tempted out of fear to hide it at some points. Because if you're actually light, the unregenerate world is not going to be saying, oh, how wonderful they are. The darkness hates the light because the light exposes their deeds. Whether it's directly the light of who Jesus is or the light of what his word says or even the light of the refraction of those things through the prism of the people who are being conformed to him by his word. That's how mercy ministry connects to evangelism. Not creating you know, welfare programs that are church-funded and church-operated so they can be happy about how social justice we are uh, and be tempted maybe to like Jesus for our sakes, I guess. All right, well, we didn't even finish uh, 1 through 11. Um, but the point is, she's being elevated to a wife, and if she isn't dealt with as fully a wife, as if she had come to be that wife uh, through other ways and through other circumstances, uh, then she is to gain her freedom and she is to continue uh, with the, the financial benefits uh, that were a consideration of her entering that way. This is, the, this is not God doing weird things with Israel so that we can feel self-righteous when we read 11 verses. This is God laying down principles and priorities that belong to him and his word and teaching us that they should be worked out in the actual everyday nitty-gritty of how his people live. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for your word. Forgive us for our arrogance. Every one of us, Lord, if we are being honest, has read a passage like this and have been puzzled over uh, how what you told your people could be so bad when we could obviously see it. Oh Lord, forgive our blindness and how bad we are that we would not be able to see the blindness. I thank you for uh, giving even in the word itself when we pay closer attention uh, the key and way uh, to understanding how sinful we are and how wonderful then is the perfect righteousness of Christ counted for us through faith, the full sacrifice of Christ, atoning uh, for and uh, enduring all of the wrath that our despising of your glory has deserved. And we pray now that you would glorify your son who has done this by conforming his church more to his image until having purified and exalted her completely and perfectly, that you have presented 
uh, us all together as one glorious and beautiful bride to him in the last day. Uh, grant it, we ask, for your glory uh, in him, for his glory in the church, and for the church's good. In his name, amen.